welcome to the next speaker of the Teacher Empowerment Summit. Uh, for this video, I'm excited to be able to introduce Justin Bader, who is the director of the Principal Center, where he helps districts build capacity for instructional leadership by helping school leaders confidently get into classrooms every day, have feedback conversations that change teacher practice, and identify their best opportunities for school improvement. A former principal with Seattle Public Schools, he holds a PhD in educational leadership and policy from the University of Washington, and is the author of Now We're Talking, 21 Days to High Performance Instructional Leadership, published by Solution Tree. And I'm pretty excited to be able to talk about some of these leadership elements, which is a huge part of what we do at Teachers Starting Fires. So with that, welcome, Justin. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here today. Excellent. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, where are you joining us from today? So our viewers know. Yeah, so I live, uh, excuse me, I live in a, a little town called Heber Springs, Arkansas, not too far from the lake. And we're just uh, raising our kids around their uh, grandparents and extended family. So principal in Seattle and then uh, live in Heber Springs, Arkansas right now. All right, excellent. And um, one of the questions we're asking pretty much everybody is what was the, the most recent school that you've been in? Yeah, so I was principal at Olympic View Elementary in Seattle Public Schools, and before that, I worked as a head teacher at the elementary level and then a middle school science teacher before that. All right. Um, so, and uh, maybe if you can share the most recent school you've been uh, working with with your, your current principal uh, instructional leadership work. Uh, as far as clients that I work with? or Yeah, yeah, or just the, maybe the, the area that you were working if you can't share specific clients. Sure. Yeah. So we actually work with uh, principals around the world. Uh, last time we counted, we had people in about 50 countries and that's across all sectors of schools, across all levels of schools, K through 12, uh, public, private, um, you know, all, all different kinds of schools. And it's, it's just so much fun to hear what uh, instructional leadership looks like to build capacity for instructional leadership and to help uh, administrators and teachers talk more. Because I think that's one of the key things that we need to do is, is really get outside of just the required processes and just you know, pay attention to, to what's going on and, and have more conversations. All right, uh, probably related to the title of the book, Now We're Talking. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> excellent. So to get to the, the meat of the ideas here for the Teacher Empowerment Summit, um, it's all about leaders in education like yourself uh, sharing the most empowering idea they think that educators all over the world should know about. So for all of the viewers of the Teacher Empowerment Summit, what is that idea that you think every educator could be empowered by? So the big idea, Jesse, that I wanted to, to share with everyone today is the idea of defining your practice with some written expectations or what I call an instructional framework. And you know, everybody has a definition in their own mind of, of what good teaching practice looks like. And in every school, there are initiatives, there are efforts underway to improve practice, but often we don't set down in writing what that particular practice looks like or what an area of practice looks like with a few specific exceptions. And, and the notable one is of course our evaluation criteria, right? In almost every school, every district, there are very clear written evaluation criteria, but when it comes to what we do on a more day-to-day -day basis, you know, if I'm just observing a lesson, if I'm in a teacher's classroom, if I, if I see something that's going on, I can connect that to the evaluation criteria. But those evaluation criteria aren't really written 
to help me provide better feedback in the moment, right? They're, they're big picture things. They're about the, the results that the teacher gets over the course of the entire school year. And often what's most helpful to talk about on a day-to-day basis is what's happening in that particular moment, what's happening in that particular lesson. And if we have, say, a school that's adopting a new curriculum, right? I'm, I'm trying to learn that, a teacher's trying to learn that new curriculum, figure out the ins and outs of it, figure out the assumptions and the pedagogy that go into teaching that curriculum well, it's not going to be very helpful to go back to our evaluation framework that says something more vague, like, you know, uses a variety of strategies to assess student learning. You know, and if I have a new math curriculum, I'm not using just a variety of strategies. There are very specific instructional strategies, uh, you know, for, for assessment, for monitoring student learning that I'm trying to get good at right now. So I don't want to have some vague kind of big picture conversation. I want to zoom in and be very specific. And in the Teacher Empowerment Summit, what I want to really encourage and empower people to do is to define those expectations for themselves, for their colleagues, for their administration, and make that a shared effort to get on the same page about what practice looks like in whatever area you want to focus on, rather than just make that an exchange of ideas and an exchange of opinions, or rather than just try to tie it to very broad evaluation criteria, I want to encourage you to be very specific about what a particular practice looks like. And not just what it looks like to an observer, because I think that's where we go first is, you know, what are, what are the checklist kind of look for that an observer be able to document? What's the end? Too often, we, we bend things toward the needs of administrators and get away from the actual thinking and, and decision-making that teachers are doing. So that, that's my big picture kind of vision for uh, where we go with this, that, that as teachers and administrators, we sit down together, define the characteristics of the practice that we're, we're working on and that we're, we're looking for so that the, the leadership and the conversations and the, the school-level decisions that are being made uh, are made with that insider's view, that teacher's perspective on that practice, and not just the what does it look for, what can I write down on my clipboard kind of view that administrators often bring. All right, a few things about that stood out. I know right at the beginning, um, kind of I, I, as a teacher, as you start to hear, uh, you know, focusing on, I guess, evaluation, or uh, like you said, it, it tends to be vague, but I know one of the stereotypes kind of all across the teacher spectrum as you like look through social media and everything else, um, just conversations from around the country, is, is that feeling that sometimes you get an evaluation um, and essentially because it's so vague and because it was just based off of a single lesson out of the entire year, that the, that feedback doesn't necessarily feel very valuable. Um, you know, because they see one, you know, an, an administrator might see one lesson or as a principal you come in and observe one lesson and uh, like you said, that evaluation is based off of these, you know, uses many methods and you might only use one or two methods in a single lesson. So it makes right. it a little difficult to know if that's actually being applied across the year. Um, I guess uh, another part of that that stands out is that idea of teachers and administration working together to create these. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering a little bit, that sounds uh, definitely ap applicable here, is that maybe how, how does a teacher or a principal kind of start this process where they both become more involved? Because I know as a principal, it, it can be frustrating to have maybe an evaluation that doesn't actually help you change or, or you know, give feedback to the teacher that's meaningful because you know, many principals, most principals are teachers at some point, and they're also familiar with the process of 
you know, evaluating and then kind of dismissing it because, uh, well, that was an unfair evaluation and they only saw one class. So how do you get towards this much better sounding process where, um, you know, as a teacher, you're actually generating some of the stuff that's on maybe your, your interactive conversations? Yeah. Well, I think part of it starts with just having modest expectations for the evaluation process and how useful it's going to be for improvement. You know, I think rhetorically, we say that the evaluation process is all about growth, but it's largely not, right? It's largely about, you know, demonstrating to the public that we have a process that, you know, that ensures quality instruction. And the growth really is quite secondary, right? It's very difficult to actually help someone grow under pressure. Right, like it's it's a very high stakes process, especially for new teachers, for people who don't have tenure. So the idea that they are both going to defend themselves and prevail and you know get renewed and grow a lot at the same time, like it's just too much going on at once. So I think for the purposes of our discussion today, let's say we're completely outside the evaluation process. Let's say we're just having informal conversations and we want to improve, we want to improve in a specific area and we want to define that practice in a way that, that reflects the insider's view. So, so let's set aside evaluation because I think it's too broad, it's too high stakes. Uh, and for most people, especially the people who bothered to tune in to the, the Teacher Empowerment Summit, most people really are focused on their own professional development, their own professional growth. And what I've found from working with tons and tons of administrators, we've had over 10,000 people go through our Instructional Leadership Challenge. And over and over again, what I hear is, wow, this is such a focus on the teacher's goals rather than me filling out a form and checking boxes. And, and I think when we start with the teacher's goals in any conversation, we find that there's a lot more to talk about, right? Like if I'm looking on a rubric for something to talk about, I can find something, but it might kind of land with a thud. It might not really be uh, anything that either of us are interested in. It's just a matter of kind of going through the process. But if we start with the teacher's goals and the teacher's thinking about what's going on in that lesson, I mean, that is an endlessly rich discussion if we start from, uh, from that starting point. And I think where we, where we typically get stuck is in opinion, right? Like I, I have my ideas about how the lesson could have gone. You have your ideas about how the lesson could have gone. And we can kind of go back and forth. And if we have a good relationship, that could be a productive conversation. But if we've kind of been butting heads, that could be a little bit tense. And it might end up with a suggestion or it might end up with a you need to do this or you need to do that. And that might leave both of us feeling like this is not an especially fun or fruitful process, especially... Yeah. You know, in cases where things are fine, we have an experienced teacher. Uh, and, and honestly, Jesse, a lot of this came out of my practice as a new principal working with very strong, very experienced teachers. And I think it's easy to miss some of these dynamics if you are an experienced principal and you have a lot of new teachers. Well, the, the power dynamic there and the expertise gap makes it very easy to give kind of directive feedback like you did this, you should have done that. Next time, do more of this. And, and I think teachers have, have kind of grown accustomed to that kind of feedback. And even more experienced teachers know to kind of smile and nod and play ball and not fight too much just because it'll, you know, the, the process will move on pretty quickly and you just kind of smile and nod and get through. I think we've all been through that as teachers, right? Like you just have to sit through the process and agree to implement the changes that were suggested or agree to think about it next time at least. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and I know, you know a lot of schools, I mean, there's the attitude as well, you know, principals rotate much faster than many, many teachers at uh, plenty of schools. And so, 
you know, I've had conversations with plenty of teachers who say like, you know, well, we don't agree, but we're just going to wait it out and eventually we'll have a different principal. And, uh, you know, obviously in that case, that's a relationship that's not helping the teachers at all. And it's also not going to be a great experience for that principal. Yeah. You know, and those conversations can be great. You know, if you have a great teacher and a great principal, the conversation can be great. But again, if you're working at cross purposes, if there is an agenda that the, the principal is trying to accomplish despite teachers rather than with teachers, you know, it's just going to be that game of, you know, this too shall pass, smile and nod, ride it out. And I just think our conversations can be so much better. And I think about some of the conversations I had with some of the, the fabulous teachers that I worked with who did not hesitate to tell me what they were working on. He said, Justin, you know, I would love to have you come in my classroom. I'm trying this new strategy for vocabulary and it's got all these uh, word sorts and we've got all these cards and I printed all this stuff out and we're cutting it out and it's going to look like a mess, but it's going to be really great. Can you come in and see what you think and give me some feedback on it? And I was delighted to do that because I was invited, right? It's great to be invited. And I was invited with a specific focus. Like I knew what the teacher wanted feedback on. And I didn't have any kind of preconceived checklist of what that would look like, right? I, this is totally new to me. We're learning together. This was the teacher's initiative. And we had some really great conversations about what our students needed, about how the practice played out, about what else it connected to. You know, if, if we're going to have our intervention teachers use this same strategy, that, that could be a big part of it. So I found that there were a ton of implications for me as a leader that went beyond the feedback that I was giving that teacher. You know, the, the feedback for the teacher might mostly come from the teacher. She, you know, she would often say, uh, okay, so tomorrow we're gonna do this again, but I'm gonna have this twist on it. And I would walk away not really having given the teacher any advice, but having learned a ton and having realized several things that I needed to go and do as the principal. I might need to go get a sub so that other people can come and watch. I might need to bring in an instructional coach to, to kind of guide that reflective process. You know, there, there were lots of leadership things that I needed to do other than tell the teacher what to change. And I think that's, that's a shift that we have to make as administrators from being kind of the, the font of all wisdom, the only expert, into really recognizing the expertise of the teachers that we have in our schools. I mean, I, I had uh, a, a great veteran staff with hundreds and hundreds of years cumulatively of experience, and uh, I just knew I had to, to tap into that if, I, if we were going to, uh, to continue to improve. So I think that that kind of takes us to the idea of, of where those expectations come from, and if, if opinion is where they come from, I'm gonna have my opinion, the teacher's gonna have their opinion, you've got your opinion, you know, we don't just want to have a nice, pleasant conversation where we don't confront each other too much. We don't want to have a confrontational conversation where we butt heads. We right. want to talk about the work, right? We want to have a productive conversation about the work. And if we only see the two of us as the participants in the conversation, we're talking about what happened, and then we each have our opinion, it's going to be one of those two things, right? We're either going to butt heads or it's just going to be pleasantries and we're going to move on. But if we bring in a third party, in the form of written shared expectations, you know, kind of a standard, that's going to allow us to depersonalize the feedback. And, and if, if we have those written expectations, we can say, okay, here's what happened. How does that compare to our standard, to our framework that we've developed for this particular practice? And if that framework is specific enough and we're both talking about the same evidence, well, that's gonna create a roadmap for us. You know, that's going to tell us, okay, here's where we are, here's where we need to be based on this evidence and based on this framework. All so, right. 
Yeah. So, um, kind of as I'm listening to that, the uh, obviously the the next place to go is getting into how to develop that roadmap, right? Um, I also wanted to, and we talked about it briefly just before this interview, um, but, you know, many, many teachers, uh, I think the first instinct to, to hear a little bit about this is, um, you know, maybe either that would be great, I wish my principal was watching this, in which case you can definitely let your principal know about the Teacher Empowerment Summit and get them in on it. Um, but one of the comparisons we make at Teachers Starting Fire a lot is that like leadership of, of guiding others and helping them develop. And, you know, in this example that I really like, Justin, of, uh, you know, guiding and going in based on the teacher's goals and what the, the teacher is trying to set up as opposed to going in and saying, hey, this is the way to do it because I'm the principal. That same dynamic we talk about in, in the classroom. So a teacher is also the leader of the class as opposed to the boss, right? And we all know as teachers, we don't want the principal that's just this boss that's like, hey, this is the way to do it. Um, you know, then you get that butting heads and, and all of these kind of opinion-based things. Uh, that same interaction, so if you're a teacher watching this, keep in mind all these ideas. Not only is it something that you can bring to your principal and try to develop that relationship, uh, you know, a little with, with this roadmap we're about to talk about, but also with your students, that same idea of like, are you giving feedback by just telling them the way they should be doing things because you're the teacher and you're the boss? Um, or are you going to be able to develop this similar, like the third party roadmap that's something written um, kind of like, you know, classroom expectations up on the wall, but to a, a greater extent. And so as we go forward on this, I just want uh, all those teachers that are watching as well to be aware that that's another place to think about this, not just the teacher principal interaction, but also if you're the teacher, a leader in the classroom kind of interacting with students, how can you use a similar idea to, to lead effectively, maybe based on student goals and making it engaging to them, right? Um, so yeah. with that then, this roadmap, I'm definitely interested, how do we create, or you know, how, how does everyone listening create a roadmap that is, is different and more useful than that uh, kind of the evaluation rubric, like you said, where you see a box and you're like, well, this is a box we have to talk about, so I guess this is our conversation, even if it's not helpful. How do you make a roadmap that is, does not lead to that same kind of interaction? Yeah. Well, I think really what it comes down to is that this is a rubric, right? And we're all familiar with developing rubrics for student work. You know, if you have students writing a research report, you develop a rubric, maybe on a four point scale, and there are different sub areas on that rubric and you give that to students. So I, I think certainly the parallel between teachers and students and teachers and administrators holds very well here. Uh, because in both cases, rubrics create a sense of shared understanding and a sense of ownership, especially depending on who's involved in the creation of that rubric. You know, if, if students are involved in developing that rubric and if students are involved in comparing sample student work to that rubric and scoring it, they're gonna have a much deeper understanding of how to do their own work proficiently uh, because they've done that. And I think it's the same with the work that teachers and coaches and administrators do together around instructional practice. So, so really what we're talking about here is a four level rubric. You know, you could have three levels, you could have five levels, but I like four. Four seems to be the standard in our profession. Okay. And what we want to do is, is pick a practice. So let's say we are focusing on a, a certain instructional strategy, uh, one that, uh, that my district focused on at the time that I was a principal was strategies for accountable talk. And I think we had 10 of them. Um, but this is actually an example of kind of how not to do it. Uh, we had these strategies for accountable talk, and I think we, we used them in a very common way. 
uh, as, as teachers and administrators, we said, okay, these are the strategies. We had some training, had some PD, we had some modeling. But after that, there was no further discussion of, of like, how do, when do you actually use this? What does good look like? What does bad look like? What's, what's really the vision or what's the roadmap? We didn't have a rubric. What we had was a list. So what would happen is that administrators would visit a classroom, maybe they'd bring a bunch of administrators, or maybe it would just be, you know, an informal visit with, with one administrator. And as soon as you walk in the room, the teacher would do something that was on that list. They'd use one of those strategies for accountable talk because that was the expectation, right? Oh, right. they knew they had to follow the list. And so your, yeah. your lesson plan instead of a lesson plan becomes a, how can I do these things off the list plan to show the administrators that I read their list? Absolutely. So the, the lesson plan would go out the window for a minute because there's an administrator here. Okay, everybody turn and talk to your neighbor about what we just did. And it became comical that, that it was just this kind of, you know, jump through the hoop when the administrator shows up because we didn't really have any criteria for quality or, you know, when do you use this? When is it appropriate in the lesson? It turned out to be appropriate whenever an administrator showed up and we knew that was, that was kind of missing the point. So if, if we focus on quality, right, if we, if we know when do I use this, when is it appropriate, what does it look like from the insider's perspective, well, then we're not, we're not tempted to do that, that same thing. Uh, and, and I call this observability bias, that temptation to just show the administrator what they want to see because they have to document it and they have stuff they have to turn in. So I might as well play ball and, you know, give them some evidence that they can turn in. Uh, observability bias pressures people to, to show other people what they want to see, but it also directs our attention to the surface features of a practice, right? When we, when we know we're supposed to do something and we know that it's supposed to look like something to the person who's documenting it, if all we show them is the surface, then, then often we're missing the substance. And I, and I think of it like an iceberg, right? Like an iceberg that floats in the water is 90% underwater, right? There's a, there's a little bit sticking out above the surface and that's really useful because we need to be able to see that the iceberg is there. But most of the mass of that iceberg is beneath the surface. And I think teacher practice is the same way that there are behaviors that you see, you know, the students are saying and doing things, the teacher is saying and doing things in a lesson. And, and that's typically what administrators document. But what's really happening is thinking like the teacher is thinking the students are thinking hopefully uh there there's planning that happened ahead of time thinking that went into the lesson and most of that is invisible to an observer right all of that that shapes the the words and the actions that are being observed behind the scenes all of that's invisible so when we're developing a rubric i think we've got to really capture that insider's perspective and, and capture what that practice looks like behind the scenes not so much just what it looks like to an observer, but, but really what it looks like behind the scenes. Uh, and I think a great example that probably will resonate with a lot of people is the idea of having an objective for a lesson, right? Like everybody has to have an objective for their lesson. Uh, often the lesson uh, objective has to be written in student-friendly language. It has to say what we will know and be able to do. It has, it has a success criteria. It has uh, a link to standards. And I saw a picture on Facebook the other day from a classroom and just, just kind of got me fired up about this. It was yeah. a picture of a whiteboard from a teacher's classroom and it had the standard, it had the success criteria, it had the I do, you do, we do or whatever. It had the, the, the learning targets. It had all these different things that the students would be working on that day in terms of the, the expectation, like what's the goal for the lesson? But it wasn't the lesson plan. It seemed to be just something that was written on the board because that was what the administrator who might be coming around during the lesson expected. And I looked at that and I thought, 
I'm not sure any of that is useful to write on the board for students. It, you know, it's probably useful for, for the teacher to have thought through some of those things, but I'm not sure it was a great use of the teacher's time to spend, I mean, probably 10 or 20 minutes fill, like literally filling a standard whiteboard with the objective for the day. And you know, if you have multiple classes that you teach at the secondary level, that really adds up like 10 minutes of writing on a whiteboard several times a day. I mean, that kills your planning period right there. So my question, I, th I think just like that clip from the summit will be replayed over and over from teachers trying to share that. Um, I, I've been at least two different school districts that had a you know, similar required, like it must be written on the board visibly in this format with these elements. Um, and it absolutely was that you know, throughout the entire school multiplied by how many schools in the district, how many hours of paid instructional time are you killing with this sentence that, you know, most teachers have thought through or are doing instinctively and the students do not benefit from. But that, that's really great to know that that's, uh, that is something enforced by experts as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's widespread. And, and it's, not that, it's not that knowing what standards you're teaching is a bad idea. It's that we're taking something that should happen at the planning level, maybe even at the unit or annual planning level, in the teacher's head, in a, a collaborative planning meeting, and we're saying, because that setting is invisible to an administrator, we need to push that up to the surface and make it visible for any administrator who might walk in the room on any given day, regardless of the cost. You know, if we're, if we're a large district, you could be spending $30,000 a day forcing teachers to write a whole whiteboard full of objectives. And it's like, that's not really what we're looking for. That's the outsider's view of the practice. What is the insider's view? So maybe uh, we didn't plan this, but maybe we could just talk about that for, for a second. And I could get your feedback on this, Jesse. What, what would the insider's view look like when it comes to preparing an objective for a lesson? And, and uh, what grade level did you teach at? Uh, so I was through mixed, it was at-risk high school, so mixed ages, 14 to, I mean, up to 21, 22, basically, okay. at the, the school we were at. Yeah, it was secondary. And did you teach science, did I hear? Yeah, so uh, for two years I was the uh, the lead and only science instructor because on my second day my uh, guide teacher came in at six a.m. and cleared out their classroom, um, and my my first year of teaching I became the science instructor for the entire charter school, um, which was pretty exciting. And then uh, yeah, I did a math intervention and uh, English language acquisition as well. Good deal. Well, hey, since we both have that, that kind of secondary science background, let's, let's use that in a, as an example if we could. And I, I want people to see that this is not difficult. This is not something that you have to spend a whole summer doing. This can be fairly straightforward based on the expertise that you already have. Uh, and, and it's that expertise that you have as an insider that's really critical. Because I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't think I ever had a principal who had been a science teacher. I think I had a principal who had been a math teacher. I had principals who had been like social studies teachers. But most people are going to work for a principal who it did, does not teach what had, had not taught what they teach, right? Right, Is right. That your experience as well. Yeah, yo, absolutely. Um, I mean, my for science, thankfully, my teach my principal had been a science teacher and was able to support me. Oh, nice. um, otherwise, that could have been pretty difficult. But yeah, I mean, as it came around, then um, for math and English language, when I was teaching those, he didn't have experience in that. Um, you know, and similar idea talking to the, the teachers my first year who did not have a principal that, you know, had their same background. So I can understand that. And, and I think naturally as instructional leaders, we tend to supervise and provide feedback based on our teaching experience, based on our subject area. So like yeah, my, my principal was a math teacher. So she gave me feedback that was very 
math-ish, right? Like, oh, you know, it's very useful for math teachers. Okay. <laughs> It'd be great feedback if I was teaching math. Uh, you know, like we're going to clearly state the objective for the lesson. We're going to have guided practice. We're going to have, uh, you know, a check for understanding and we're going to have uh, some, some independent practice and then feedback. And then we're going to check that the next, like, of course, that's how you teach math in a lot of cases, but that's not at all how you teach science. So one of the things that I got frustrated about very, very quickly was this idea that I should tell students exactly how the lesson would go and exactly what the learning target was at the beginning of the lesson. And I, and I had to say, you know, I really think it's okay for my objective for the lesson to be a question because this is a lab. We are going to do some investigation. Right. Like I, I found that it made a lot more sense for me often to express it as a question. Um, but let's, let's hash that out a little bit. So like if, if we're going to establish uh, the, the objective or the purpose or, you know, kind of orient that in the standards for a particular lesson, what does that look like from the insider's perspective? And the, and the first question I would ask, is, you know, after we've chosen that focus uh, for developing our rubric is what are some of the subcomponents? Like what needs, you know, and, and the whiteboard had a whole bunch of subcomponents written on it, but what would you and I say are the, uh, the components of determining or setting the objective for a lesson uh, at the secondary science, in the secondary science classroom? Let's just brainstorm for a sec. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's going to be a few elements. I think, again, comparing to that math, seeing the, you know, as a math interventionist, seeing the very different process in mm -hmm. that you could so easily set a, a goal of like, hey, this is our target behavior. Um, where I definitely know in science, um, you know, I'm thinking physics is being able to explain, uh, you know, magnetic currents and how they might flow through metal is something that maybe can be assessed, but it's not something that you can really uh, often give a worksheet to, especially for that initial level of understanding. Uh, maybe at the AP level, you can, you know, really have a lot of the equation application. But um, for me, especially at an at-risk school, it was teaching the, uh, you know, one, one area that was always interesting to me was teaching human biology to students because, um, you know, so often they just, they didn't have a concept of how their skin and their organs and all the different parts of their body uh, interacted or tied together and occasionally being able to do a dissection lab of, of one kind or another. Um, so, I mean, I, I know we did a, a heart dissection lab a few times that um, is just one of those things that really always stood out in their minds. Um, I mean, different elements of that, uh, obviously some of the, the background knowledge that's required to know, as well as some of the safety protocols for lab equipment and being able to you know, not, not play with the hearts and things like that. Yeah, so there's a lot going on when we're planning a science lesson, right? We've got standards, we've got some systems that we're probably teaching, but you know, whether we're talking about astronomy or biology, there are often systems, maybe it's a system of chemical reactions, or you know, there's some sort of uh, interaction or, or systems effect that's going on, and some sort of phenomenon that we want students to either wonder about or explore or learn about. And another thing that, that pops up for me that, that we could talk about is uh, the, the idea of a student's preconceived ideas, you know, their, their current mental model and how we can kind of get at their understanding and, and kind of address misconceptions and, and all of that. Yeah. So if, if we're going to set the, uh, let, let's just call it a learning target. Maybe our school calls it a learning target. You and I are science teachers and we have got to figure out what it means to set a learning target in the science classroom because, you know, we are, we are definitely not big fans of filling our entire prep period, filling whiteboards. Um, what would need to go into a learning target for a science classroom? Um, 
And, and I think I would say, I, I'm going to try to get out of writing the standards on the board every day because they're long and they're, they're kind of the same for the whole unit. Um, but what, you know, what, what are some of the components of developing the, the learning target for each lesson from, from our insider's perspective? Um, so, I mean, learning target, uh, I guess what kind of pieces are you looking for here? I, I guess the, there's so many things that come to mind, which uh, I guess is the complexity of teaching each lesson. Um, yeah. For me, though, I mean, lab behavior and lab safety, that's going to be obviously not the focus of the entire class, but something that's necessary. Uh, maybe a little bit more of the academic knowledge understanding of uh, how the heart ties into the lungs, the blood, everything else in your body. Um, and, you know, how cardiovascular versus different organ systems, how your kidneys, like everything interacts that way. Um, but then also, I mean, for the dissection, at least, the specific physical heart and being able to find, you know, physical compartments within the object that they're holding as well, uh, and kind of tying those back to, to what they've been learning in class. Okay, yeah. So maybe we want to focus on what students uh, are able to do or, or able to, to, you know, to find within that lab. And, and I think okay. it's okay for us to say, like, under different, in different kinds of lessons, we might format this a little bit differently. Because if I'm doing a lab today, yeah, I've got to focus on very different things than if we are doing some, some writing to articulate our understanding of a, of a phenomenon. So let's, right. let's go. So we've, got, uh, we've got a lab going on today. Safety is a huge priority. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but I would fail to anticipate what students were going to get wrong with my directions. And then first period would like ruin all the materials for the entire day. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that only has yeah. to happen like once or yes. twice. If you don't separate the materials, it's like, <laughs> Um, I remember one student basically, you know, had mixed several different things they shouldn't have and uh, kind of taken out the supply table for, for the day. Um, and their explanation was, but mister, they're all white powders. <laughs> it's like, well, that's, that's reasonable, I guess. Like, who, who am I to insist that we separate the various white powders in chemistry? <laughs> and you know, you notice what we're doing here is we're getting very specific. Like we are definitely getting into the weeds of teaching a science. Uh, and the administrator who not a science teacher is gonna kind of start to pull back from that and say, "Okay, I feel like you're you're kind of losing me here, or maybe you're kind of just trying to throw a bunch of stuff at me so I get lost and I, I disengage from the conversation." But that's not what we're doing. We're really trying to get specific about what the nature of the work is rather than try to say, okay, let me translate science into math pedagogy because you're a teacher, you know, for the administrator's sake. But, let, you know, when, when we get specific about what practice looks like, you know, we have to acknowledge if we're doing a lab, safety and understanding the lab directions and understanding how to use the materials, really, really, really crucial. It might be much more crucial than, say, uh, you know, using assessment criteria to form our groups. Like in another class, you know, in a class, you might group students based on some sort of data that you've collected. Right, in science, right. that might not be my, I'm, I might be very focused on, okay, we're going we're gonna to be safe. We're going to have everybody follow the procedure correctly so that the thing is not ruined in the first place. But the phenomenon that we're going to talk about today, like we're, we're really interested in the heart and how the heart connects to other human body systems. So when, when we start to identify those components, for each component of uh, that, that aspect of practice, so, so determining the, the learning target, we might identify some components such as safety. So what are, the, what are the safety aspects of this lesson that need to be factored in? Uh, procedure, what do students need to do and, uh, as far as the steps they're going to take? And then the, um, 
you know, the, the goal for the lab, you know, different labs can have different goals. You might want the students just in a dissection to just recognize the different parts of whatever they're dissecting, right? Like identify this ventricle and that ventricle right. uh, um, and where it connects to the, you know, the lungs and things like that. So your objective is going to be very discipline specific. It's going to be worded in a dis discipline specific way. And, um, and then from there, once we've identified those components, however many there are, the next step is to make a rubric and to say, okay, what are the different levels of performance when it comes to uh, safety? What are the different levels of performance when it comes to procedure? And what are the different levels of performance when it comes to identifying the, the, you know, the actual objective for the lab? You know, where, where are we supposed to get what is, you know, poor to, to excellent look like? And a rubric is pretty familiar, right? Everybody knows what a rubric is. You probably have a teacher evaluation rubric, but often we don't make rubrics for very specific things like this. So I wanna give a couple of, of kind of mental categories for what can go in each of those columns. So let's say we're on a four point scale. Good practice should probably be at a level three, right? I think that's, that's kind of our expectation that if, if a student is at a level three on a student rubric, they're doing fine. If they're at a level four, they're beyond fine. It's amazing. Uh, and if in my practice as a teacher, if I'm at a level three, I'm doing, I'm doing great, right? That's, I'm, I'm doing fine. If I'm at a level four, that's above and beyond and fantastic. What about level one and two though? If I'm going to do a very poor job of setting the, uh, the objective for the lesson, what would it look like to do that very poorly? You know, and I, and I think of level four as kind of, or excuse me, level one as the apprenticeship of observation, you know, like kind of how we were taught when we were students. If we just kind of repeated what we saw our teachers doing when we were kids and didn't really learn how to be teachers, we just kind of passed on the, the poor instruction that might have been part of our experience as, as kids. That would probably be a level one. Okay. Um, so what would, what would level one kind of look like when it comes to... Uh, safety instruction. Let's just do safety instructions because I feel like that's a pretty, uh, pretty straightforward one. And again, it's very discipline specific. So by the way, if you are a social studies teacher and you're listening to this and we're kind of losing you as science teachers talking about science instruction, like that's kind of the point is that we need to get into the specifics and you've got to articulate the specifics of what your practice looks like because your administrator is not going to know. They're not going to know the inner rationale why you're doing what you're doing. And you've probably experienced how much work it is to explain that and pull them back from their, you know, math specific feedback about your social studies lesson. Uh, but Jesse, let's talk about uh, lab directions. So what would very poor lab directions look like? I mean, the basics I can think of uh, that I, I've probably seen it at least once or twice as well. But um, I mean, anytime instruction is incomplete, uh, obviously, so if pieces are missing from the basic setup, um, I mean, kind of on the teacher setup side, if equipment is missing, uh, I know, you know, it was not a, not a well-off school I was at, and we had an empty fire blanket container for um, a good chunk of the time, and, and were, you know, able to finally replace it, but it was just one of those who knows where it went, and apparently the previous teacher never bothered mentioning anything. Um, so, you know, either equipment missing uh, or definitely incomplete explanation of, of how to use, or um, I guess one of the parts that I've seen missing as well is explaining why as well as just mm. like, hey, you have to do this. And a lot of students don't react well to that, but explaining why you have to do it, students might do a little bit better. So maybe a level one would be, um, you know, really simple, unexplained instructions of what to do and then not enforcing it as well. Yeah. So if the teacher hasn't thought through what materials are necessary for safety, what reminders and kind of awareness students need to have, 
uh, if they haven't prepared, you know, like honestly, I feel like some labs start with, okay, kids go in the stock room and find this stuff, you know, and the level of preparation wasn't there to ensure student safety and to make sure that we had the material. So that might be our level one. And then I might take what you said there about explaining the why that might be our level two. Like I can tell the kids what to do, but if they don't know there could still be some, some misconceptions and they might, you know, violate those procedures for reasons they don't understand. Uh, you know, if they don't understand why they matter, that might be our level two. And then my level three might be that I have thought through all of those things that I have checked my materials. I have what I need. It's organized in a way that students can access it. It's ready. Uh, and then students get complete instructions, you know, and, and we might, we might break this into two components about the instructions and the materials, but students are getting, uh, you know, thorough instructions that cover everything that they, uh, you know, that they need to know. So what we're doing here, uh, and I don't think we need to go any further with, with developing that particular rubric. What we're doing here is we're explaining the challenges and the problems that we're trying to solve in our work as teachers, right? Like you and I are trying to prevent the students from getting hurt, materials from being wasted, the lab from being made pointless by <laughs> some sort of right, accident, right. incident. Like the learning target is going to go out the window if we don't take care of those things. And we want our administrators to know that and why we're focused on those things when we come into the room. So if we do want to, to shift our attention into thinking more, say, about the content objective, then we do it with that context in mind. And we can articulate whatever our rubric is about the, the content objective um, you know, with that same insider's perspective and not, say, you know, a math teacher's perspective. Level four, though. We haven't talked about level four yet. Level four, I, I strongly believe, should be a national professional model. Like level four should be the best that anyone is doing anywhere. You know, you might find a video on YouTube, like an Edutopia video might show you some level four practice. You might be taken to visit a teacher in your district who is at a level four in a very particular area. But level four is not just what experienced teachers commonly do, right? Like level four is truly above and beyond. And I think we've got to, to almost always leave that blank so that we can start to accumulate the, the vision for that over time as, you know, as we gain experience, okay. see great things. Um, so I would encourage you to start with level three. You know, what does proficient look like? What does it look like when you do this right in your school? And then, you know, fill in level one, level two. What does it look like when things don't go well, when things are not done correctly in that particular area of practice? And then level four, we search for the, the best anywhere. And when, when we have that level of clarity about a specific area of our practice looks like, the whole conversation changes, right? Because instead of it being about, you know, why didn't you try my favorite strategy today, Justin? Like, have you ever been in that position where you do something and it works fine and you're thinking about how you could have done it better and you have all these ideas for how you could have done it better? And then in walks the instructor coach and they say, yeah, that, I mean, that went fine, but why didn't you do X? And of course, yep. there are an yeah, infinite number I, of I think most, uh, most teachers have had some kind of feedback that, you know, did not relate to even where they were trying to take the lesson. Yeah, um, I, exactly. I know for me, one of the, uh, which, you know, might show a little bit of distance just from, uh, from the assessment in general, but one of the biggest pieces of feedback I got was that um, at the time, like I, that day I had been holding my coffee mug in my hand while teaching um, during the PowerPoint. Right, like to me, maybe a non-issue. It wasn't interfering with anything. It was PowerPoints. I still had full engagement from students. Um, but yeah, the, the feedback uh, that I got, as opposed to any of the learning things that might have been helpful as a first or second year teacher, uh, was that maybe I shouldn't be holding a coffee cup um, 
because it was distracting, which, uh, you know, I mean, I'll take that, but also obviously not, not where I would have developed a rubric for my own set of goals or growth or development as a teacher for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and when we, we start with that insider's view, right? Like that almost prevents us from developing some sort of silly and distracting focus. Like if, if, if you know, a teacher would sit down with another teacher and make a rubric about their practice. Like that would never result in a rubric that says something like, it's not to cup of coffee while explaining things to the class. You know, like we would right. never put that in there. Structured, yeah. like a very structured rubric to actually talk about. Um, and I like that idea of developing it with another teacher uh, as well, as opposed to like, you know, this doesn't require every single teacher to sit down with the principal one-on-one -on -one and develop their own practice. But if you have, you know, different or even uh, same or even different subjects in social studies, you could work with other social studies teachers to develop this kind of rubric. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of the, the kinds of people who will be tuning in to the, the uh, Teacher Empowerment Summit are probably teachers who are asked to mentor new teachers in their department, maybe asked to host student teachers. So this can be a really great opportunity to, to get around the expert's curse. You know, the expert's curse, like you're good at something and you can do it, but it's, it's kind of hard to explain how to do it to someone else. And I think that's why a lot of experienced teachers like to take on students, student teachers because you, you get that opportunity to really think through, okay, I'm doing it this way, I've been doing it this way for years, but why, what works about that, what, you know, what makes it work? And having those conversations with a less experienced colleague and really articulating that for yourself can be an incredibly powerful professional growth exercise and kind of, kind of mirror some of what people do in the national board portfolio process where you're uh, reflecting on your teaching and you're thinking through what you did in a lesson, you're sharing that practice uh, and, you know, and explaining it. That kind of detailed, you know, here is why this works, here is how this works from the insider's perspective, I think can be so powerful, not only for people that you're mentoring, but for yourself. Okay. Now, um, to get uh, kind of your, your view on a few specific steps, basically, if teachers are hearing this, there's, there's you know, a lot of ideas in this interview so far, um, to give people a specific spot, spot to start, um, either for principals or to, you know, there's going to be cases of teachers watching this, maybe because they don't have the strongest principal in the world, and they're really looking for, for opportunities outside of their own admin. Um, but what would maybe be the, somebody sees this video and is like, yes, like I want to have more meaningful rubrics really about my own practice and my own goals. So either principals or teachers, what's a step that teachers could take tomorrow or over the next few days? Um, you know, as, as, uh, as school kicks back in on this next Monday, what is a step teachers could start taking on a daily basis to move towards this type of system? Well, I think the, the immediate application of this is to ask for feedback in a specific area. So if you're a teacher, say, hey, I'm, I'm going to be teaching this lesson. You're going to be coming to observe me tomorrow. I would really appreciate your feedback on my lab directions or my guided practice. You know, you pick an area and you actually cue the administrator on what to look for. You know, these are the components of an effective practice in this area. Can you please give me feedback on those specific things? And you don't have to develop a rubric at that stage, but just say, let's focus on this particular aspect. Because if you don't, what's gonna happen is the administrator is gonna come in, they're looking for things that are easy to document, and they're looking with eyes that have been trained in a particular discipline. That's probably not what you teach. And it's going to be a huge gift to your administrator to say, okay, look for these specific things. How did I do this? How did I do that? 
you define the components that you want them to look for. If you are an administrator, ask for that. Say, what do you want me to look for? And tell me what's, what are the specific components of that practice? Not the steps, really, but like what are the actual insider's view components of that practice so that I know what to look for, so that I know what to document, so that we have something useful to talk about. Because otherwise, I'm going to give you feedback that's based on my background, not based on what the work, the intellectual work and the, the planning that you're actually doing right now with your students. And then try it out. You know, you may not end up with a full rubric the first time, but simply by asking the question of, of what is the nature of this practice, what are the components of it, and what are the different levels of performance, we can start to, to be much more specific and much more, more fruitful in our feedback conversations. Okay. I, uh, I like that a lot. I mean, even just imagining the, the change of a relationship, if you happen to have one of those slightly strained or even just, you know, somewhat impersonal relationships of, you know, you, you see your administrator once or twice an entire year in the classroom. Um, and, and I know at least a lot of the teachers I talk to, the evaluation day is not, you know, looked upon as this great opportunity for growth so much as this kind of like begrudging interaction from both sides of the principals like, ah, I have to spend some time watching this teacher who, you know, I think is doing fine, but now I have to say something about one class. Uh, but if you go, you know, forward, hey, if you are a teacher asking for that type of input, you're saying like, hey, I actually value your input and you give your principal somewhere to actually focus, which I love. Um, but that idea too, as a principal saying like, hey, what do you want me to look for? That changes the dynamic as well as, a, you know, like you're there. And I like your example of, you know, being a young principal at a, a school filled with really experienced teachers going towards one of those teachers and saying like, hey, how can I help you? What do you want me to look for? Obviously has a much better impact as opposed to like, I'm going to come in and tell you how to do your job you've been doing for 20 years, which is uh, unfortunately, I think kind of the implied feeling sometimes for those interactions. All right. So I like that a lot of reaching out, even without that full rubric put together. Um, now you've worked with a lot of schools. Could you give an example of, you know, again, not necessarily specifics depending on clients and all that, but um, just an example of where a shifting from kind of the year long eval process to maybe this, this smaller, more focused uh, insider perspective rubric has, a, has had an impact or has been successful. Yeah, um, I'll actually give kind of a kind of an unconventional example of, of using these rubrics. Um, I have one client I've worked very closely with who has done some tremendous work with, uh, actually, in this case, it wasn't teachers, it was the classroom aides. And uh, especially who worked with students with IEPs, supporting them and being successful in the mainstream classroom. And I know probably a lot of our, our viewers and listeners will ha have a lot of experience working with classroom aides, maybe who travel with the student throughout the day. And what she was noticing was that some people, some of the classroom aides, and she had a large number in her school, uh, did a, just a great job and just seemed to really have good common sense about how to adapt, you know, because every day is complicated and things happen and you have to adjust. Uh, and it's not one where you, it's not a situation where you can just make hard and fast rules about what to do if the student gets upset, what to do if the student, you know, if this happens. And she really needed people to act with common sense, but you can't necessarily hire for a common, you know, like you can't tell in advance if people are going to have common sense in the way that you want. So what she did yes, was only she that just, was an interview question. Yeah. Do you have common sense? Yes or no. Um, what she started to do was just take notes about things that happened throughout the year that either worked or drove her up the wall. So, okay, this is an example of what I consider common sense. Do this. That worked great. This is a non-example. And she just kept, you know, kept a little stack of paper with some like draft rubrics there 
And over the course of a school year, she filled that in. And at the beginning of the year, she knew she wanted common sense, but she didn't know what that looked like. By the end of the year, she had six pages of examples of good and bad that she could share with her, you know, her team, her instructional assistants and say, okay, when this happens, this is what you do. If you do this other thing instead, that's not what we're looking for. That's like a level one on our rubric. And people loved having the clarity. They so appreciated having the clarity. And they knew if they were, you know, having trouble, you know, doing what the principal wanted, they could look at that rubric and say, okay, here's where I need to go. I think for our audience today of, uh, of teachers who probably are pretty far along in their, uh, their understanding of pedagogy, the, the big opportunity here is to get your administrator on the same page with you in terms of understanding your pedagogy from the inside out and not trying to evaluate that with, with some uh, you know, set of expectations that comes from another subject area. All right. Yeah, I, I think that you know, for being an unconventional example, it does, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, which is why you, you shared it, but it does a great job of, of showing why for even something as seemingly kind of abstract or common sense as common sense, that having that written down makes such a huge difference to the staff. Because I mean, I can imagine a principal for a year being like, why don't people just act with more common sense and really having no idea by the end of the year any more than at the beginning of the year what that means. Whereas if she can you know, give six pages of like, hey, these are examples I consider common sense and things to aim at, that's, uh, you know, shows exactly what they they can fall back to, to kind of like to, to get that written version of feedback. Um, so obviously this process could take more than a half hour interview, uh, to master, which, which is why you've been able to work with people all over the world on it for long periods of time. Um, if people are watching this and I, sure many want to be able to continue this, try to apply it a little bit more. Where can participants learn more about this concept from you? Yeah. So I think what I can do is I can, uh, provide a link to the, uh, the worksheet that we use to, to kind of brainstorm those components and those, uh, those levels in the rubric. So that can be a good starting point. Just give you a little bit of a, a template to, um, you know, to get started brainstorming and maybe sharing those expectations, uh, or those, uh, those, you know, here's what I need feedback on, uh, aspects with an administrator. Uh, my website is principalcenter.com and our, uh, best program for getting administrators into, uh, this line of thinking is probably the instructional leadership challenge. And, uh, what I can do is I can, uh, give you a, a special link for people who have the, uh, the all access path, uh, pass, and we can, uh, can make that available as well. But uh, pretty much everything we do is at principalcenter.com. All right. So principalcenter.com, we will, um, we'll have links to these, uh, the various pieces. So link to his website. Um, you'll be able to find that here with the video it should be down in the description below. Um, but like Justin just mentioned, if you have a VIP all access pass, um, which now since it's during the summit is a $97 pass, but you do have that affiliate option. So if you get one or two of your co-teachers to sign up, it's basically free. If you get three or four of your fellow teachers to sign up and buy a pass as well, to get access to uh, the entire summit, to all of the MP3 files, to the transcripts, you will also get these amazing pieces that, that 
only through the VIP pass do you have access to in that membership area. So in this case from Justin, you'll get access to the full instructional leadership challenge, um, which, you know, especially if you are a principal watching this, incredibly valuable there. Uh, teachers also, I'm guessing, can benefit a little bit from this process. Would you agree? Absolutely. All right. Um, so that instructional leadership challenge, you're going to have access to that through uh, as well as this link to the worksheet to start kind of refining your own rubric. Um, you'll have access to that if you have this VIP pass as well. So that all access pass gives you lifetime access to the entire summit, everything that you've already seen, everything that you're going to see over the, the rest of the summit. Um, you'll be able to have lifetime access to that as well as get all of these additional resources from speakers such as Justin Bader here, uh, who's providing some amazing resources for us as well. So thank you for that, Justin. Um, let's see, wrapping up here then. Yeah, I mean, basically, the, there, there's obviously a lot here, which is part of what makes education so exciting to be able to talk to, to people like yourself about this. Do, would you have a, a closing message for all of the uh, summit viewers here that have seen this video that have started getting excited about this idea of maybe more meaningful personalized rubrics that actually cover their version of pedagogy instead of just kind of this abstract evaluation. Uh, what's your closing message for everybody here. I think it's just that that there is so much power in conversation, right? When we can talk about practice, we can reflect on our own practice, we can get ideas from other people. And a lot of the power is not just in the exchange of ideas, but in the specificity of the ideas. You know, I, th I think we, we are so busy in this profession. We have so many steps to take, so many requirements to fulfill, so many students to teach and papers to grade. You know, there's, there's just so much going on that sometimes I, I feel like we need to just carve out a little bit of time to stop and think deeply about one particular aspect of our practice. Because, you know, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, you know what, I got really good at one particular thing by focusing on everything. You know, if we want to get better overall, we get better by getting better at very, very specific aspects of our practice. So I think that's, that's what I want to challenge people to do is, is pick something that is going to be uh, high leverage for you, going to, make, going to make a big difference for your students. And don't be afraid to go deep on that and engage your colleagues, engage your administrators and instructional coaches in that conversation about a very specific area of your practice so that you can fulfill your vision for, uh, for your practice in that area. All right. Uh, so this has been Dr. Justin Bader with Teacher Empowerment Summit. Uh, so for now, thank you, everyone. And thank you so much, Justin, for joining us. And uh, goodbye for now, everyone. Take care. Thanks. All right.